Welcome to the Simple Faith Podcast, exploring authentic Christianity for normal people. My name is Dave Betts, and together with my wife, Sherea, we're going to explore all the things that make our faith what it is. From looking at the big picture of the Bible to exploring the tough questions that might be getting in the way of your relationship with God. We're not going to use unnecessarily churchy language, and we're not pretending that we have all the answers. And the best bit, we'll never take more than 30 minutes of your time each week. We want to keep it simple and hopefully have some fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. In this week's episode, we conclude our short series looking at the church and LGBT. Welcome back to the Simple Faith Podcast and part three of our series looking at the church and LGBT. I can wholeheartedly say that we have never put more time and prayer into anything that we've ever discussed publicly. So I hope that this has been a valuable journey so far. We are acutely aware of how painful these discussions can be for some people. And we want you to know that if you feel that way, we would love to pray for you, every single one of you. You can contact us through simplefaithpodcast.com. And I promise you that we will take time to listen to you and to pray with you, even if there are a thousand of you. What we're discussing is not some theological argument to be won. It's about people. And sometimes that includes hurting people. And we really do mean it when we say that we are here for you. Absolutely. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about what the Bible actually says about homosexuality, how we as the church should respond, and then talk about transgender and intersex. As we said last week, we think it's really important that you don't just take this episode out of context. The ones that have come before are vital to today's discussion. So we would really encourage you to take some time to listen to them. Yeah, but as we did last week, it's still worthwhile doing a brief recap of the conclusions that we came to before we jump in. Now, remember that these are just the conclusions and not the explanations behind it. So please, please, please uh, listen to Shreya and take a listen to those episodes if you haven't listened to them yet. How many times can I say listen in one sentence? Anyway, we, we looked at it this way. We defined some terms. We looked at how the church has really reacted quite poorly to the LGBT discussion in previous years. And then we made it clear that we believe the Bible is the divinely inspired word of God. And this is crucial because if this is the case, we can't simply choose to ignore biblical teaching, however challenging or complex, without seriously compromising our faith. Yeah. And then we recognize that we are humans made in the image of God. And while sexual identity certainly plays a role in our lives as Christians, it's a small one. More than anything else, as Christians, we are image bearers of God, children of God, and co-heirs with Christ. In some way, our biological maleness and femaleness is part of this. And we saw that, contrary to contemporary Western culture, celibate singleness is actually encouraged in the Bible. And so is monogamous, lifelong, heterosexual marriage. The Bible says that any sexual activity outside of marriage is considered a sin. So Dave, with all that in place, What does the Bible say about LGBT? Let's start with homosexuality. Okay, here we go. So we know that the Bible says a ton about sexual immorality. We talked about that before. You know, the idea of sexual activity outside of marriage. But as far as same-sex attraction and same-sex behavior, there's actually really only six passages. Uh, Genesis 19, 1 to 9. Leviticus 18, 22. Leviticus 20, 13. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. 1 Timothy 1.10 and Romans 1.26-27. Now, 
If that seems a little fast, don't forget, you can find a transcript of this episode on simplefaithpodcast.com. But we're going to talk about each one of those verses quickly. And I'm conscious that as ever, we can very rarely give these verses the full attention they deserve, but at least we can do our best to give a broad understanding. So let's start with Genesis 19 verses 1 to 11. This is the account of Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's often used in the LGBT discussion. You know, if Las Vegas is considered sin city, Sodom and Gomorrah were in like the next league above. They were they were crazy. Basically, in the, in the passage, two angels enter Sodom, Uh, the city, and Lot invites them to rest at his house. They eat a meal together, and before they go to bed, Genesis 19, 4 tells us that all the men in Sodom surround the house, and in verse 5, it tells us what happens next. Listen to this. It says, they called out to Lot and said, where are the men who came to you tonight? Send them to us so that we can have sex with them. It's pretty intense. Lot pleads with the men, and shockingly, he even offers his virgin daughters instead. Uh, They escape, and God obliterates Sodom and Gomorrah, and that's all in Genesis 19. So this is pretty intense, right? This is where we get the term sodomy or sodomite. You might have used this term or heard of this term before, but it's super, super unhelpful, and here's why. It's often assumed that uh, the attempted homosexual gang rape is the immense sin that wiped them out. But when the Bible talks about Sodom and Gomorrah elsewhere, it focuses on other sins. Listen to a familiar author, a guy called Preston Sprinkle that we've talked about a lot so far in this discussion. Listen to what he has to say. Isaiah 1 verses 10 to 17 mentions Sodom, but there's no mention of gay sex. Isaiah 3, 9 mentions Sodom, still no trace of homosexuality. Jeremiah 23, 14, Lamentations 4, 6, and even Jesus in Matthew 10 verses 5 to 10 refer to Sodom, but they never gave the slightest hint of anything related to same-sex relations. Did the biblical prophets and Jesus misread Genesis 19 or have we? Wow. Obviously, same-sex gang rape is a sin. Any kind of gang rape is, of course, a sin. But as far as passages that support or oppose same-sex monogamous relationships, this doesn't really help the discussion in our opinion. So we're going to move on from this one. Okay, so the next verses you mentioned are Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13. Yeah, so here's what they say. Leviticus 18.22 says this, You are not to sleep with a man as with a woman. It is detestable. And Leviticus 20 verse 13 says, If a man sleeps with a man as with a woman, they have both committed a detestable act. They must be put to death. Their death is their own fault. It's pretty intense, isn't it? For Jewish people, these verses are fairly indisputable. They they don't seem to have any particular form of male-to-male sex in mind. In particular, it's all-encompassing. The language is pretty general, but... Here's the question, what about Christians? As Christians, we have this weird relationship with Old Testament law where we follow some things but don't follow others. So you would be justified in thinking, well, that just doesn't apply to us now that we have Jesus, right? For example, in Deuteronomy 14, 21, God's people are commanded not to boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And so, like, that's a fair thought, isn't it? But there's a few ways to answer this. Firstly, There's a broad agreement amongst scholars that Leviticus 18.2.21 is one long interconnected unit. So in this connected section, almost every law that is given is still relevant today. So it's, it's things like incest, adultery, child sacrifice, bestiality, idolatry, stealing, and deception. 
And even the command to love your neighbor as yourself that we know so well, it actually comes from Leviticus 19. So the, the first reason to pay attention to these verses is because, well, so many of the other verses in this section are still relevant for today. So that's, that's important, but it's not airtight by any means. Uh, to explain the next reason why these verses in Leviticus are still relevant, we have to take a quick detour, and this is where things are going to get pretty deep. So stick with us here, because this is so important. We have to talk about Greek words, and I don't love delving into Greek words unless it's really, really important, but in this case, it's vital. So there are two key and much debated Greek words that are relevant to this, this discussion. The first one is arsenikoitai, and then the second one is malakoi. And we see them in the next passage in this list that we, we gave at the beginning in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 10. Now, the passage says this. It says, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be received. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. So that phrase, males who have sex with males, needs a much closer look. In the Greek passage, it would say something a bit like this. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, and, and this next part, or uh, males who have sex with males, is actually, or malakoi, or arsenikoitai. Well, there are two different Greek words. So how did the, the translators arrive at males who have sex with males? Stick with me here. Uh, let's talk about that first word, malakoi. According to uh, one theologian, Kevin DeYoung, the standard Greek lexicon of the New Testament lists two definitions of malako, which is the singular of malakoi. Uh, one as being yielding to touch, and two as being passive in a same-sex relationship. The word can mean soft, as in soft clothing, and there's examples of that in Matthew eleven eight and Luke seven twenty five, or it can mean uh, effeminate, as in men who are penetrated like a female would be by another man. So it's, it's pretty graphic there, but it, it's important that we talk about this properly. So this first word, malakoi, could have multiple meanings, but in the context of 1 Corinthians 6, it's pretty obvious that it's referring to people, and most likely, to put it kind of bluntly, the passive male in the sexual relationship. But before we arrive at any conclusions from here, we still need to talk about the other word, that arsenikoite, which not only appears here, but also in uh, one of our other key passages, 1 Timothy 10. Let me read verses uh, 9 to 11, so around that passage, to give you a bit more context. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral and homosexuals, this is that word, arsenikoites, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and for whatever, each is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which was entrusted to me. So this word, arsenikoitai, actually doesn't appear prior to the New Testament. That's a really interesting thing, and it's actually a really big deal. Uh, I know this is kind of like something from the movie Inception, but we're about to take another step deeper. So I really, I hope you're still uh, keeping up with us okay. And we'll summarize this in just a sec. We think that Paul is probably coining his own compound word here. He's making up a word here based on some other words. So there's something called the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And it was widely used in, in Paul's day. And he would have known it extraordinarily well. 
In fact, uh, he was often described as a Greek-speaking Hebrew of Hebrews before he was radically converted to Christianity. So he coins this word, arsenokoite, from two other words, arsen, which means man, and koita, which means bed. It means male bedders. But listen to this. This is where it gets really crazy. The only time we find those two words, arsen and koite, in close proximity anywhere else prior to Paul is in those Leviticus passages we talked about. Leviticus 18 verse 22 and Leviticus 20 verse 13. The passages we just looked at in the Old Testament. So Paul is describing both the active and the the passive partners in that relationship, referencing and reaffirming the passages in Leviticus and at the same time describing them in the context of sinful behavior. So we can't just discard those Leviticus passages just because they're in the Old Testament. And uh, it's also important to recognize that the New Testament passages are still relevant for us today. Okay, so hopefully you're still following this conversation here. So let's, let's summarize. The Sodom and Gomorrah passage, well, it's not really hugely helpful in this discussion, in our opinion. Uh, Leviticus 18 and 21 that says that, that homosexuality, that same-sex behavior is wrong. Well, yep, they still appear to be relevant today for numerous reasons, as, as well as 1 Corinthians 6 and uh, 1 Timothy 1, which introduces those kind of key Greek words. But let's look at one more passage, Romans 1, 26 to 27. It says this, For this reason God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men, in the same way, also left natural relationships with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. So this is a really important passage in the discussion. And I know as we're on a podcast, sometimes it's hard to kind of mentally picture all these verses. But in it, Paul uh, describes how both men and women left natural relations for unnatural ones. And interestingly, it's the only place in the Bible where female same-sex relations are mentioned. The context clearly appears to be talking about same-sex behavior. However, when we trace the path we've already taken in this discussion, you know, that were made male and female in the image of God, intended for heterosexual marriage and that sexual immorality is any sexual activity outside of marriage, it's, it's really hard to read Paul's words in any other way. Same-sex behavior is considered sin. I want to read a quote from a lady called Rebecca McLaughlin. In her book, Confronting Christianity, she says it well. And this is someone who herself has wrestled with same-sex attractions. She says, The Bible is unequivocal on the question of homosexual sex. First, men sleeping with men is prohibited in the Jewish law. And she lists uh, the two Leviticus passages. But this doesn't prove the case for Christians. Many Old Testament laws are specifically declared not binding in the New Testament. For example, food restrictions. But the logic of opposite sex marriage and the prohibition on homosexual sex are reaffirmed multiple times. Okay, so with the two Leviticus passages, the passage in 1 Corinthians 6, the passage in 1 Timothy 1, and the passage in Romans 1, along with the previous discussions we've had about monogamous marriage, we just can't land at any biblical conclusion other than the fact that it doesn't condone same-sex behavior. Now, a quick side note here. You know, I've heard a few people in, in podcasts and on social media feeds, people who are friends of mine, actually, shout fairly loudly and, and confidently about 
what they call the terrible translations of some of these passages. And usually they cite pretty sketchy hobbyist blogs to do so. And I want to be clear here and actually pretty firm. This is absolutely not true. These translations from Greek to our various translations, whether it's NIV or ESV or CSB, etc., they're, they're made by deeply qualified scholars who spend countless hours poring over their texts. They're not always perfect, but they are never terrible. In fact, you only have to speak a little bit of New Testament Greek to know that for yourself. So please, can I encourage you to be very, very cautious about what you hear and listen to and to look hard for trustworthy evidence. Don't just take someone's word for it just because they're shouting loudly or it's what you might want to hear. Because that's not only a dangerous practice in general, but it's, it's actually dishonoring to God. Wow. Okay. That's really helpful, um, even though I know that it might not necessarily be what some people want to hear. But I'm curious, you particularly mentioned same-sex behavior here. What about same-sex attraction? Yeah, that's a great point. And it's really important we don't miss this. So we can see that same-sex behavior is described as sinful in the Bible in multiple ways. But like, here's where we have to be so, so careful. Hear this. Nowhere in the Bible does it suggest that it is sinful to experience same-sex attraction. The truth is no one knows for sure if someone is born with same-sex attraction or whether it's something that develops. No one knows that. Most scientists seem to concede that that's the case. But whatever the case, whether it's one or the other or both, there is no mention about same-sex attraction in the Bible. Of course, it's sinful to lust after someone of the same sex, but, but that's true of all sexual orientations. It, there is nothing clear that says that same-sex attraction is wrong. That's why we've made that distinction between same-sex attraction and same-sex behavior. I think it means that, that A, it's not the attraction that's considered sin, it's the behavior. The Bible is pretty clear that acting on those impulses is, is sinful. But to experience feelings of attraction is not, which I get is really hard to hear. But we, this is why we have to recognize that the church has made terrible mistakes in the past. It's why we have to recognize that we are made in the image of God and our identity is in Christ, not our relationship status. It's why we have to truly see the joy of biblical singleness as a God-given gift and not just a punishment like our culture treats it as. And B, we as the rest of the body of Christ, the church, we have to do a much better job of celebrating singleness, of loving people where they're at, of walking through this journey with them and, and understanding that attraction isn't a sin. Lust is, yes. Uh, acting on same-sex attraction is, yeah, but not the attraction itself. Yeah, this is a difficult conversation for sure. Um, and I just want to remind our listeners that we are here to talk and pray for you if you need it. Um, we're going to leave a bunch of helpful resources in the show notes too. Before we end, can we really quickly touch on transgender and intersex? What does the Bible say about that? Yeah, I'm really sorry that we won't be able to give as much time to the T in the LGBT as we have been able to give to the other letters, but let's blast through it quickly. Firstly, the Bible doesn't directly address transgender. To say otherwise would be misleading, but to say that, on the other hand, it's therefore affirming of transgenderism is a logical fallacy called an argument from silence. In other words, you'd be kind of making it up. Like there's there's one passage that speaks against cross-dressing in Deuteronomy 22.5, but if you're a man who genuinely believes you're a woman, is that cross-dressing? Well, some would say yes and some would say no. So, so this passage alone isn't enough. But what we can do, however, is look at what the Bible says more broadly and come to a well-informed, kind of educated conclusion. 
Firstly, we know that God created male and female in his image. We know he created them for monogamous heterosexual marriage and, and procreation. We know that. Secondly, we know that all mentions of gender are physical in nature in the Bible. All mentions of gender. Thirdly, we know that any sexual relations outside of the marriage bed is considered sexual immorality. And same-sex relations fall into this category. And finally, we know that cross-dressing is prohibited. So based on this evidence, it's pretty difficult to argue that God is in favor of transgenderism. This isn't to say that gender dysphoria isn't a huge challenge that takes an incredible emotional toll on a person. And we need to love people sincerely and deeply and carefully through this. We need to come alongside them and, and walk with them. But I think to argue anything otherwise would be an argument from silence which, as we said before, is a logical fallacy. Now, let's talk about intersex, because this is a very different story. Clearly, the Bible teaches that there are males and there are females, but interestingly, there are also people who are neither born physically fully male or physically fully female. Jesus even talks about this. Did you know that? In Matthew 19, verses 11 to 12, listen to this. He says, He responded, Not everyone can accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who are made by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who is able to accept it should accept it. So in Matthew 19, as Jesus is talking, we see that he both affirms the male and female binary, that there are males and there are females, but he also recognizes that there are sometimes uh, physical exceptions. And at this point, I want to highly, highly, highly recommend a really fantastic message from uh, someone called Andrew Wilson, who's a hero of mine, who does a really great job of unpacking this passage in and discussing both uh, transgender and intersex. So again, the link will be in the show notes. Okay, so we are coming to the end of this discussion around the church and LGBT. Is there anything else you want to say to conclude, Dave? Yes, I think there is. Uh, this series is called The Church and LGBT. Um, why? Well, because we want to talk about how we, the church, respond. Uh, there are some deeper levels to this discussion on a pastoral level, but here's what I want us to remember as we, we close this series. No, the Bible doesn't affirm same-sex behavior, but it says nothing about same-sex attraction. That's really important. We need to recognize that we have done a terrible job of seeing the people involved in this discussion as people. This isn't an argument to be won. This is about seeing God's children flourishing under his guidance. Next, we need to recognize that no two circumstances are the same. You know, backgrounds, upbringings, cultures, experiences, all of these things shape who we are. So we can't just have a blanket policy for our response. We can create biblical guiding principles, yes. But when we create rigid rule books, we run the risk of losing the love that God commands us to have towards one another. So we have to be careful and we need to talk. God loves each and every person in this world. So should we be willing to ask people about their experiences. As Andrew Wilson says, ask people what it's like to be them. What's it like to be you? Don't let sexual orientation be a barrier to, to friendship. So often that's the case and it's tragic. And remember that tolerance doesn't mean agreeing with someone. It means loving them irrespective of your differences. That's so, so important. Yeah, that's right. 
we have got to see the people behind these discussions and love them as who we've been commanded to in the Bible. This is a really, really high calling. And let's be honest, it's impossible to fulfill without the guidance of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And as we move forward, we need to continually ask God for the wisdom, patience, and love that we so desperately need to serve him well in our communities. So that is it for our series on the church and LGBT. If you have any questions, you know where to find us. Um, We'll see you next week as we continue this journey on the Simple Faith Podcast. God bless. Bye.